Well, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to continue in our study of Daniel. At the beginning uh, of the book, we saw that Daniel is an uncompromising man of God. And this quality of his uncompromising character will reappear as we go throughout the book. And we'll see him being used by God because of his devotion to God. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. We see this with Daniel. Daniel is always, all throughout exile, standing before kings. But with Daniel, we actually see even more than that. We see that Daniel is standing before God. So we can, we can say about Daniel, do you see a man devoted to God? He will stand before God and he will be used by God. Daniel stands not only before human kings, but before the king of kings, before God himself. And Daniel is not the only one in the scriptures who is used by God because of his faithfulness to God. You can think about Abraham. He believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was the man through whom the nation of Israel came. Moses was the humblest man, and God used him to lead Israel out of Egypt. Joshua did not let the word of God depart from his mouth, and God used him to bring the nation of Israel into the promised land. David was a man after God's own heart, he became the king of Israel through, whom, through whose line the Messiah came. And Hebrews 11 lists many and many and many of the giants of the faith of God whom God uses to fulfill his will. Now, as you think about these that I listed, you might say that every single one of these individuals is so sinful. And you're absolutely right. They are sinful. But they're repentant. And they're faithful. So you can be a broken vessel, but if you're repentant and if you're faithful to God, God will use you. And Daniel was such a man. And Daniel chapter 2 records how God used Daniel in the crisis because Daniel was a man of God. Now, Daniel 2 is known for the story of Nebuchadnezzar having a dream and nobody's able to interpret the dream, and then Daniel interprets that dream. Nebuchadnezzar has the dream which God himself gives to him. No one interprets it. Nebuchadnezzar decides to kill everyone. And as the crisis reaches its peak, God raises up Daniel, a man of God, who then resolves this crisis specifically to bring glory to God. So in this passage, we see how God raises up a crisis and then raises up Daniel to resolve that crisis specifically to exalt God as the sovereign king over all of humanity. He was a man of God in the midst of a crisis. And the story begins with a crisis that comes from God and that is intended to glorify God. The disturbing dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing dream which troubles him, which robs him of peace, which robs him of his sleep, and which catapults this entire crisis. And you can look at verse 1 with me, which begins the story. It says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. 
Now, it's easy to think that a dream is just a natural and a physiological part of life. And in a way, it is because we always have dreams. But in this case, God strategically uses the dreams to give revelation to Nebuchadnezzar. And later on in the chapter, in verse 28, uh, Daniel explicitly says that God used this dream to bring this revelation about the last days to Nebuchadnezzar. So this dream, this crisis, really comes directly from God, but like everything else in this world, God is in full control of this crisis. God is in full control of every single detail that takes place in this story. Now, this Nebuchadnezzar, he is a fascinating character. He's an impressive ruler. He conquered that massive ancient Near Eastern uh, nation of Assyria, and he built the nation, the great or the Babylon the Great, and that yellow region on the map that you can see, that's all of the territory that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over in one way or another. Now, while being a great ruler, he was also an instrument of God who judged Judah. In Jeremiah 27, verse 6, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And so as God's servant, he was used to destroy Judah, to destroy Jerusalem, and to bring Many, many Israelites to exile, including Daniel and his friends. And so this Nebuchadnezzar the Great has dreams that bother him. The fact that it says that he has dreams rather than just a dream means that these dreams are not accidental. They are not coincidental. They are coming directly from God. And you can remember the story of Joseph in Genesis when the Pharaoh had dreams Joseph came to him and he said, the fact that you had dreams, he explicitly says the repetition of these dreams means that this matter is coming from God, it's being confirmed by God, and that God is acting. That's in Genesis chapter 41, verse 32. And so in Nebuchadnezzar's case, God was also behind the dream and he was acting, he was revealing a message to this pagan dictator, Nebuchadnezzar. But if Nebuchadnezzar was pagan, then why reveal this message specifically to a pagan ruler? He's a pagan king. He has nothing to do with God. Why is he chosen to receive this revelation? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was a great king in the ancient Near East. And so God wanted him to know that even though he was a great king, there was yet a greater king, the greatest king. And that was God himself. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know that God was the supreme king over all humanity. And so because he has these dreams and because these dreams bother Nebuchadnezzar, verse 2 in chapter 2 says that he called in all of the magicians and conjurers and sorcerers and Chaldeans to explain the meaning of these dreams to him. And in verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know this dream. And you can see here that he switches from dreams to dream to show that all of these dreams revolved around one message, around one vision that Daniel is going to interpret later on. Now, with all of these Babylonians now in the palace, this was a full-fledged, superstitious, and a black magic event. Magicians were those who contacted the supernatural world and they tried to bring 
various spells and they obtained knowledge in that way. The conjurers contacted the spirits. The sorcerers is actually translated from Hebrew into Aramaic as the word pharmakos, which we get pharmacy from. Now, if you work at the pharmacy, there is no direct relationship to sorcery. So I think you can, you can rest well tonight. But what they did was they used various dr- uh, drugs to alter the consciousness of man so that they could then obtain knowledge that way through sorcery. And then there's the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans were soothsayers, and they got insight from things like stargazing, astrologers, you know, watching the stars and obtaining various fates and futures, uh, elements of the future from the stars. So Nebuchadnezzar calls all of them in, and by calling all of them in, he was making a statement that he was helpless. But that's exactly what God wanted him to feel and to experience because God was going to use the situation to put his own glory on display. And so while all of this is happening, while the palace is feeling helpless, while the king is feeling helpless, they don't know what they're going to do. God, at the same time, is already preparing a man for this task, the man Daniel. And how do we know this? Because of Daniel chapter 1. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 17, it says that these four youths, God gave them knowledge and insight in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Nebuchadnezzar needed his dreams interpreted. The conjurers, all of these wise men, the Chaldeans, they couldn't interpret this dream. Meanwhile, God had given the gift to Daniel to interpret dreams. And so at the end of the three years of training of Daniel and his friends, they were going to be used by God, or Daniel was going to be used by God specifically to interpret this dream for Nebuchadnezzar and to bring glory to God at that time. Now, when we said that when Daniel was brought to Babylon, he was 15 years old. So he was a very young man. And the question is, how old is he at this point of the story? It says in verse 1 that this happened in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar when he be- after he became king. But Abner already pointed it out last time that they counted years differently. Whenever a person became king... At that time, they counted it as zero, one, two. We say a person becomes a king or a president or something, we say one, two, three. They say zero, one, two. So their third year, or their, yeah, their third year, they call second. But we call the third year the third year. So here, this is three years after Daniel is brought to Babylon. So when he was 15, he's brought to Babylon. Three years pass, he's now 18 years old. So he's still a very young man, probably like many of the TMU students here, just a very young man, but he already is being used by God for this crisis. Now, before he is used by God, God needs to do something else in this narrative. He needs to turn the screw of this crisis just a little bit more until it's absolutely clear that only God can resolve this mystery. So the crisis intensifies, and this disturbing dream 
that Nebuchadnezzar had turns into a deadly dilemma. The crisis turns into a deadly dilemma when the wise men are not able to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream, so he decides to kill everyone. When Nebuchadnezzar called these men and he told them the problem, the wise men understandably said to him, well, tell us your dream and we'll interpret it for you. In verse 4, it says, The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Say the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. It's a reasonable request. You tell me the dream, I'll tell you the interpretation. Now, notice here that they spoke to him in Aramaic. What is Aramaic, and why switch to Aramaic? Well, Aramaic comes from a region just right north of Israel. You can see Judah right there in the map. And then Aram, right here, that's where Aramaic really comes from. And in the 700s and in the 600s, when Assyria and then Babylonia ruled the ancient Near East, Aramaic became the lingua franca. It became the language that everybody spoke, just like English today. But the question is, Daniel is Israelite, so even though Aramaic is the lingua franca, why is he switching to Aramaic. He's an Israelite, right? His language is Hebrew. Why not just write the whole thing in Hebrew? Just translate it. When I was in Hebrew University in Israel, I was talking to my advisor, and, you know, we're talking in Hebrew. The classes are all in Hebrew. Everybody's speaking Hebrew. I was talking to her, and we were talking about publishing papers and writing and publishing books and things like that, and she said to me that she actually doesn't mind if her students write their papers in English. And I thought, why? That doesn't make any sense. This is Israel. Why not write, write everything in Hebrew? And she said, well, in the case, in the event that the students want to publish their articles, she wants the whole world to read the articles, not one nation. And that's exactly what is happening here with Daniel. Daniel, or God, I should say, wanted the entire nation, the entire world to be able to read the story of how God brought resolution to a mystery, how God was glorified through this, how God did what none of the pagans, none of the Babylonian rulers or wise men could do. So Daniel switches to Aramaic and he records the entire conversation between the king and between the wise men in the language of the entire world of that time, of the entire ancient Near East. So these Babylonian wise men, they say to the king, tell us your dream in Aramaic, and we'll tell you the interpretation. And at this point, they're confident that they can do this. You tell us the dream, we'll give you the explanation for what this dream means. And they're confident because there were all kinds of ways to interpret dreams in the ancient Near East. If you dream that an axe falls in front of you, the explanation is that you will encounter, and you will fight someone who is powerful, okay? If you dream that you are eating a raven, then that means that you will become wealthy. If you dream that a raven is eating you, you're in trouble, okay? But they had all of these manuals, and they've had all of these rules to interpret dreams, and they're positive that they can give this interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. But there is a prerequisite to interpreting dreams, and that is you have to know the dream. And the problem here was that Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream. 
Now, this was a problem only for the wise men. It wasn't a problem for Nebuchadnezzar because he still wanted them to interpret the dream. In fact, at this point, he wanted them to tell him the dream and the interpretation. For him, this was no problem. And so he gives them an option. He says, either tell me the dream and the interpretation, or, and you will be rewarded, or don't tell me the dream and the interpretation, and you will die. In verses 5 and 6, this is what he says. The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and the reward and great glory. And and this punishment that he's describing here, this is no exaggeration. This is no figure of speech. In Jeremiah 52, when Nebuchadnezzar just conquered uh, Judah, it says that he took Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and he gouged out his eyes. He blinded him. Later on in Daniel chapter 3, we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace of fire. In chapter 6, we see that Daniel is thrown to the den of lions. So this is not something that he is exaggerating upon. He is saying that this is going to be your punishment. And they knew that if they don't resolve this issue, they will be punished. And then on top of this, he says that not only will you be punished, but your houses will be turned into a garbage pile or even a place of refuse so that your name is ultimately disgraced. So they have these two options. You can either be crowned or you can be killed. Those are the two options. Well, the wise men are stumped and they're dumbstruck at this point. And so they repeat themselves in verse 7 and they say, let the king say the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar does not like this response one bit. He's thinking that if they truly have access to the supernatural, as they claim that they do, they should be able to explain this to him, to tell him the dream without a problem. But if they're delaying this, or since they're delaying this, he concludes that they're charlatans, or worse yet, that they are conspirators. Look at verses 8 and 9. Nebuchadnezzar says, I know for certain that you are buying time, inasmuch as you have seen that the word from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one law for you. Then he continues, Indeed, you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time is changed. Therefore, say the dream to me that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar hints here that he was beginning to think that there is a conspiracy happening to assassinate him. That's the meaning of corrupt words. Meanwhile, the wise men are completely helpless at this point. So they essentially respond to him by confessing that they are fakes. In verse 10, look at what they say. They say, there is not a man on earth who is able to declare the matter for the king. So they're saying, okay, we can't do it. But neither can anybody else on this planet. And then look at verse 11. They say, there is no one else who could declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with flesh. Well, the king's response is, I thought you guys were in contact with the gods. I thought that you were magicians and conjurers. I thought that you can do this. Go to your gods and ask them what the dream was that they gave to me, and then they'll tell you, and you'll tell it to me. Why is this all of a sudden so difficult? Why is this a problem all of a sudden? 
and then to add fuel to the fire, they insult the king and they call him irrational. Look at verse 10. They say, no great king or powerful ruler has ever asked about a matter like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. They essentially say to him, king, this is insane. How do you expect us to come up with something that is so irrational? No one would ever ask for something like this. But God was using the situation to put all of these magicians and all of these Babylonian wise men into a corner so that in the end, God comes out as the only one who can resolve this mystery. He wanted all of them to see that they and their gods are fake. And only God and God's man can bring resolution to this dilemma. So now the wise men can't tell the dream. They can't interpret this dream. And they insult the king. Now what? Well, look at verses 12 and 13. It says that because of this, the king became indignant and very furious. So the law went forth that the wise men were to be killed, and then they sought out Daniel and his friends to kill them. What's happening here is that God ordained a crisis that no one could resolve except God alone. And in this way, God would demonstrate his supremacy over all of humanity, over all of the human affairs, over all of the human events. And he alone would get the glory for this because he alone would resolve this mystery. And so with this law to execute all of the wise men, God brings the king and the entire palace to the place where he wants them to be in complete helplessness and complete chaos. And in the midst of this chaos and all of this commotion in the palace, in comes Daniel onto the scene, a man of God whom God raises up to resolve this crisis and to bring glory to God. And as Daniel comes on the scene, he immediately demonstrates a character of discernment. At this point, the executioners, they've gone out to kill Daniel and his friends and all of the wise men. And when they come to Daniel, this is how Daniel is introduced in verse 14. Verse 14, it says, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone forth to kill the wise men of Babylon. Completely opposite to the wise men of Babylon Daniel actually acts wisely, and he does not insult anyone, especially people who have the power to kill him. And so Ariok comes to him, and Daniel holds complete composure of himself. And just keep in mind that Ariok is not just some harmless messenger. Ariok is called here the captain of the king's bodyguard, which is another name for chief executioner. He kills people. That's his job, and that's his mission. That's why it says here that he went out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So when he comes and he knocks on your door, he's not coming to ask ask you, how's your day going? (laughs) He's coming there with a mission, and that mission is to kill you. That's what he's here for. When I was a student in Boston, I was on a student council, 
And our mission was to make life better for all the students. And so we would receive various complaints and suggestions and recommendations for how we can improve student life. Well, I remember one of those meetings when we had a suggestion come in. It was really a complaint, but it came in with specific details of how we can change one policy or one uh, element in our student life. And this is how the complaint went. When I call 911, the student wrote, the police who answer the phone are not nice. Now, just as a refresher, when you call 911, the dispatcher says, 911, what is your emergency? And I think that's the tone that they ask it in, right? There's no emotion there. So then the complaint, after saying that they're not nice, the complaint went on to say that, to give a suggestion, and say that when, uh, when I call the police, they should answer the phone by saying, 911, how are you doing today? The suggestion continues. They should wait to hear the response of the caller, and then they should go on to say, what is your emergency today? I imagine this doesn't happen at TMU. This happens probably only at woke schools. But when this does begin to happen at TMU, you know that it's going woke. So, Well, Ariok did not come to say, hey, how are you today? He came to say, hello, I'm here to remove your head. And then he would say, may I come in, please, if <laughs> maybe. <laughs> the situation was not calm. It was not peaceful. It was chaotic. But unlike the Babylonian wise men, Daniel acted wisely, and he brought the situation to, uh, he held composure in this situation. So when Aria comes to Daniel, Daniel asks him a question. And this question pauses the entire process of execution. In verse 15, Daniel says, For what reason is the law from the king so urgent? He didn't insult the rationality or the irrationality of the king's decision. He simply asked about its timing. Why is it so urgent? And presumably and hopefully this would prompt a response from Ariok, the executioner, and maybe this would start a conversation to see what would happen. And that's what it did. And of course, Ariok, when Daniel asked him this, Ariok could have easily said to him, well, that's none of your business. I'm here to kill you, so let's get on with this. Right? He could have said that to him, but obviously, God put Daniel in favor with Ariok, and so, uh, so Ariok did not do this. But Ariok responded to him, and in the next part of verse 15, it says that Ariok made the matter known to Daniel. So in God's providence, and very possibly because Ariok already knew the reputation of Daniel from chapter 1, that he and his friends answered 10 times better than all of the other Babylonians. Maybe he already knew this reputation. But in God's providence, Ariok showed favor to Daniel, and he gave him the answer instead of just killing him right there in the spot. And so after Daniel receives favor from the executioner, the story goes on to describe that Daniel actually went on to receive favor from the king himself. Verse 16 says that after all of this happened with Ariok, Daniel went in and he sought from the king that he would give him time, that he might declare the interpretation to the king. And we have to understand that this is serious favor. If you think about it, Daniel goes to the king to ask him for time. 
What did the Babylonians want? They wanted time. That's why Nebuchadnezzar said, I know that you are buying time in verse 8. What did the king not give them? Time. Daniel goes in and asks, asks for time. What does Daniel get? Time. God was clearly giving Daniel favor with the king. And as I noted earlier, we can see how God was already preparing Daniel for this moment so that Nebuchadnezzar would show him this favor. If you look at verse 20 in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 20, this is after Daniel and his friends are educated in all things Babylonian. They're brought before the king after these three years, and verse 20 says that for every matter of wisdom and understanding which the king sought from, the, from the Daniel and his friends, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his kingdom. So Daniel's reputation preceded him. And God, in part, used Daniel's reputation to give him this favor with the king in this life and death situation. So in his wisdom and in his courage, Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he promises to him exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is looking for, and that is the dream and its interpretation. But we can also ask at this point, how could Daniel be so presumptuous to promise something like this to to the king when he himself did not yet know the dream or its interpretation? How could he do this? And there's only one answer. He trusted that God would reveal to him the details of the dream and the interpretation. Chapter 1, verse 17, which we already saw, says that Daniel understood in all kinds of visions and dreams. And so here Daniel is trusting that God would reveal to him the vision or the dream and the interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar had because God had already given to Daniel the gift to interpret dreams and visions. Daniel didn't think he would figure it out on his own. He was totally, entirely dependent on God for this. And this is the second characteristic of Daniel that Daniel demonstrates in this situation. In addition to showing discernment, Daniel also shows dependence on God. A man of God, a woman of God, depends on God for guidance, for wisdom in crises, but also in every situation of life. And we see Daniel doing this. Daniel first shows his dependence on God by going to God in prayer to ask for the revelation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. After Daniel makes this humanly audacious promise to the king that he would give him the dream, verse 17 says that Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to his friends, to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But Daniel didn't go to his friends so that they would tell him the meaning of the dream or the dream itself. He went to his friends so that together they would go to the Lord in prayer and plead with God to give this revelation to Daniel. And that's exactly what we do when we pray for one another. Of course, we uphold one another. We encourage one another. But even more importantly, we all go to the Lord and we ask him to be our help in the time of our need. And that's what Daniel did. Verse 18 says, Daniel went to his friends 
to seek compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. The Lord essentially had Nebuchadnezzar seek to put to death all of these wise men so that Daniel and his friends would turn around and seek God for God's protection. And then in verse 19, it says that when Daniel prayed to God, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Now, a night vision is not the same as a dream. Dreams take place when you're asleep, and night visions take place when you're awake. So while Daniel and his friends are on their knees, God gives Daniel a vision, and this vision is the revelation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And then when God answers Daniel, Daniel's response is to praise God and to affirm his dependence on God. So Daniel first shows his dependence on God by going to God in prayer, and he secondly shows his dependence on God by praising God and affirming that God is sovereign and that only God knows and controls all of this universe. Verse 19 says that Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and then in verses 20 through 23, Daniel breaks out in exaltation that God is sovereign. And in verse 20, he begins his prayer, which you can see on the screen. He begins by saying, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and might belong to him. And he says here that God is immutable. God doesn't change. He's always good forever and ever. He's omniscient. That means he knows everything. And he is omnipotent, which means that he is all-powerful. Then Daniel continues to say, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. In other words, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the natural world. He's sovereign over humanity. God is in control of every period of history and of every event in history. He establishes kings. He establishes presidents and governors and mayors and every single person in the power of authority. And then Daniel continues and he says, he gives wisdom to wise men, and knowledge to men of understanding. In other words, God is benevolent. He's the one who makes the wise men wise, and he's the one who gives knowledge to those who have knowledge. He says he reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So here Daniel again praises God for his omniscience, for the fact that he knows everything, because God just revealed to Daniel, the vision or the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, something that is humanly impossible to know. Now, up to this point, Daniel was speaking about God in prayer. He was saying that he gives wisdom. He reveals secrets. But now he turns and he addresses God directly, and he says this, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. Even now you have made known to me what we sought from you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel turns to God and he is intimately and personally thanking God and worshiping God for giving this revelation to Daniel so that Daniel can go to Nebuchadnezzar, explain the dream, explain the interpretation of the dream, and save many lives and bring this crisis to resolution. Because God gave this vision to Daniel, Daniel's response is to praise God and to glorify God. 
And this is the third characteristic of Daniel that Daniel reveals to us. Daniel shows that he is completely devoted to the glory of God. And he makes sure here that he in no way gets in the way of giving glory to God when he is revealing the dream and the interpretation of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, as he's doing this, first of all, Daniel prepares to, or Daniel, as he's preparing to give the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel shows compassion to the Babylonian wise men, which also brings glory to God. He could have just neglected them. He could have just left them alone to die, but he doesn't. In verse 24, he goes to Arioch and it sa- he says to Arioch, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will declare the interpretation to the king. If you think about this, Daniel shows a lot of chutzpah here. Right? A lot of nerve. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, just said, kill all the wise men. Daniel, 18 years old, comes back and says, don't kill any of the wise men. Nebuchadnezzar should say, kill Daniel and then kill the wise men. Okay? <laughs> but Daniel shows a lot of boldness here by contradicting the king. But in doing this, he is showing fearless compassion to these Babylonian wise men who were on their way to hell. And he knew that sparing their life would mean that they would have additional time, additional opportunities to hear the truth about God and then to repent and to glorify God, which is the prime focus of Daniel's life. And so he says, do not kill them. And then after stopping the slaughter of the wise men, Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him the dream. Now, when Arioch brings Daniel to the king, Arioch gives himself a little too much credit for what Daniel is about to do. Look at verse 25. Arioch says in verse 25, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Arioch clearly wants to get some recognition for bringing Daniel, who is going to solve the problem for Nebuchadnezzar. But at the same time, by boasting about Daniel, Arioch actually shows that he's convinced that Daniel can do this. Because if Daniel can't do this, then Arioch just brought a fraud into the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And so not only is Daniel wasting his time, or Arioch also wasting the king's time, Arioch is also lying to the king. So Arioch is willing to put his life on the line that Daniel can give this interpretation to the king. At age 18, Daniel already had this reputation that Arioch was willing to put his life on. So as Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar says to him in verse 26, Arioch presents him, this is your man. Nebuchadnezzar says to him in verse 26, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Can you do what all of the other wise men couldn't do? Now look at verse 27, Daniel's response. Daniel says, As for the mystery about which the king is asking, neither wise men 
conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Daniel says, no, I cannot. Nobody can. That's Daniel's response. Arioch must have been sweating at this time <laughs> because he promised the king that this is the man for the solution. This is the closer, if you will. But Daniel says, I can't give you the solution. But in saying this, Daniel's actually setting up the answer in a way that would bring all of the glory to God. Daniel says in verse 28, after saying, no, nobody can bring, solve this mystery. Daniel says in verse 28, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So I cannot solve this problem. I cannot give you this dream or its interpretation, but God can. Daniel was fully devoted to the glory of God. And then Daniel adds in verse 28, God has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the last days. Now, this phrase in the last days is used from Genesis to Revelation, and it's used as a phrase to refer to the end, to the entire eschatological plan of God. So, to the future of Israel, to the coming of the Messiah, to the Messiah's reign over the entire universe. And Daniel says that God has given this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is impressive. This is grandiose, what Daniel is saying here. But how can Nebuchadnezzar be certain that Daniel is not going to make stuff up right now? Right? He says to him that this was your dream and these are the visions of your head while you were in your bed, but Nebuchadnezzar can't remember his dream. So how is he going to know that Daniel is actually telling the truth? Well, Daniel wanted to preempt this question and to show Nebuchadnezzar that what he would tell him would be absolutely true, Daniel first tells Nebuchadnezzar what Nebuchadnezzar does know and what only Nebuchadnezzar could have known. He tells Nebuchadnezzar what the king was thinking about when he was lying in bed before he fell asleep. And nobody could have known this except Nebuchadnezzar. And so if Daniel can tell Nebuchadnezzar what he was thinking before he fell asleep, certainly he can tell Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamt about and its interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar can be certain of this. So in verse 29, Daniel says, As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turned to what would happen in the future. So while you were in your bed, Nebuchadnezzar, before you fell asleep, you were thinking about the future, about what will happen to you, what will happen to this kingdom, what will happen to everything around you. That's what you were thinking. And so if Nebuchadnezzar was thinking this, he would have known whether Daniel was lying or telling the truth. And Daniel says this to him, and the implication is that you know that what I'm telling you is the truth, and therefore you can be certain that when I tell you the dream and its interpretation, it's also going to be absolutely true. So if Daniel 
had Nebuchadnezzar's attention earlier, he definitely had his full attention now. So Daniel says that you were thinking about the future of your kingdom. So God decided to reveal to you the future about the kingdoms of the world. And in verse 29, Daniel says, He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will happen. And that is the future. Since God is the one who knows Nebuchadnezzar's future and the future of all of the kingdoms that come after this, this means that God, that Nebuchadnezzar's future is not in Nebuchadnezzar's hands, but that it's in God's hand. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who is supreme. And this is the message that Daniel is bringing to Nebuchadnezzar. And then in verse 30, taking the attention off of himself, Daniel reinforces this message that God is supreme, and he turns the focus on God once again. He says in verse 30, But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me by any wisdom which is in me more than any other man, any other living man. Daniel points away from himself and says, I'm just an instrument in the hands of God. Daniel wanted it to be absolutely clear that he is not the source of this vision. He is not the focus of this mystery or of this vision. And by doing this, he brings all of the attention on God. God is the source. God is the center of this mystery. And then Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that God revealed all this so that Nebuchadnezzar would know the future. And the future is that God will reign supreme as a glorious king over all of humanity. In the last part of verse 30, Daniel says that God gave this dream for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. What were the thoughts of his heart? The future. What was God revealing in this dream? The future. And what is the climax of the future? The awesome and the supreme and the glorious victory and the reign of God. And that's what God was revealing to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. So God raises up a crisis, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And then God raises up a man to resolve this crisis so that this man could declare the glory of God, that God will reign as the supreme, supreme king, even over and greater than the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. But this is only the first part of the chapter. The second part reveals the actual dream that he had and we see Daniel explain there the meaning of that dream and how it gives us a glimpse of the future where God ultimately will reign supreme over all of humanity. But that is for next time. <laughs> let me pray and let me praise God for his revelation. Father, we thank you that you have intervened in humanity, Lord, that you did not abandon us, that you did not condemn us to freedom that ultimately leads to hell. Lord, we thank you that you gave us your word, that you gave us your plan, Lord, that you provided your son to die on the cross for us so that we can have salvation, so that we can have a relationship with you, 
so that when we see your plan for the future, Lord, we can be part of that future, so that when we see that you will reign as the supreme king, Lord, we can be part of your kingdom. We praise you for that. Lord, help us to cherish your word. Help us to treasure it. Help us to always study it so that we know your plan and we know you more and more. Lord God, help us to love you more as a result of this. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.